Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. Welcome to the Washington, D.C. series. Matias and I went down to Washington, D.C. to, uh, to get, get a better feel for the life of the capital and, and to really harness, uh, harness the intellectual capital that exists in Washington, D.C. Uh, in a lot of different subject areas. And this conversation that you're about to hear is with Dr. Mikhail Peton, who is a PhD in cultural studies uh, and who really focuses a lot on representation. So we get into uh, to issues of, of Muslim imagery uh, in popular culture in the post-9-11 era. Uh, we talk about some of his thesis work uh, regarding uh, black Muslim males specifically in, in popular culture uh, in, in the post-9-11 era. And towards the end of the discussion, we, we dig into some of the economics of representation. Uh, so we hope you enjoy this discussion. We wanted to thank Dr. Keaton for, for being so generous with his time and being such a great conversation partner, both on and off the air. And we wanted to extend a thanks to Boston University DC offices where we recorded this interview. We're thankful to them for letting us use their space. And, uh, and finally, I'd like to note that this is one of nine in the, uh, in the Washington DC series. So you can find the rest of it at bucommonthread.com or by searching the Common Thread podcast on the iTunes store. Uh, that said, let's get started with this interview. I'm going to toss it over to Matias. So I, I grew up in France, um, where right now the question of Muslim identity is central not just to, uh, I guess, the, the question of the place of Muslims in society and that kind of thing, but moreover to the very question of like secularism and what it means in France, like what it means to have visible representation of religion, that kind of thing. And um, I guess the, the the question that that for me is has been central both to the United to the to the discussion in the United States and in France. And it, it's recurrent in all of the different subjects in which in which it's discussed is the question of identity. Mm-hmm. So, the question is: is is a French Muslim or an American Muslim a Muslim first, an American first, or French person first? What what precedes what precedes what in terms of identity? Mm-hmm. And there are different and there are different construals based on on the people talking, right? So mm-hmm. so people who People who have, I mean, openly Islamophobic people say that, for example, that it's not possible, for instance, for uh, a Muslim to serve in the American military in the Middle East because of a conflict around religion, because they're not able to separate out the religious dimension, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so my, my first question for you, for you would be, I mean, in the course of your studies, how have you seen that conversation evolve over time in the, in the context of the war on terror? Hmm. Matias, that's such an important question. Uh, thinking about identity, nationalism, cosmopolitanism, uh, multiculturalism, uh, even in a loose sense, intersectionality. I mean, you, you're, you're asking a set of questions that are so important to the moment that we live in right now in a very polarized United States. And in France and Europe in general, really, are also polarized um, because you're also, I think, uh, speaking to a history of colonization, mm-hmm. decolonization, yeah. and uh, those who were colonized who are now decolonized, uh, traveling to France, traveling to, to parts of Europe, uh, and wanting to 
partake in these global economies in different ways instead of being the the sources right really being the benefactors mm-hmm. and so you ask about can uh, an American can a French Muslim reconcile being Muslim and also Western right. and I, I think undeniably yes emphatically yes uh, I you have to ask a, a, a Christian American, are they Christian or are they American first? Uh, really, when you think about Islam, you think about being Muslim, it's, uh, it's a way of life for, for, for most, although for some, it is, uh, you know, it, it, is a, it is a set of traditional values. Uh, it's religious practice, right? Uh, it's uh, an identity... Um, as part of a, a, a global community. And so uh, religion doesn't really have any parameters, any barriers. I mean, you know, religion is really uh, amorphous. Mm-hmm. And so religion can, uh, whether you're Christian, you're Muslim, you're Hindu, you're Jewish, uh, religion can really seep into areas and spaces without any any type of prohibitions, right? Uh, and so a Muslim in France might have a difficult time because of the, because of the, because of the difficulty of multiculturalism as a project in Europe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But also uh, the, uh, the secularism that is inherent, that competes with the Catholicism, oh, right, you know, in France. Uh, and so m- yeah. Muslims coming in are, even if they are uh, second generation French mm-hmm. citizens, they're still, they're still competing against something that is, is so inherent to what it means to be French. Right. You know, I haven't been to Paris in probably, it's been more than 10 years but I can remember talking to uh, a friend of mine who was actually um, uh, uh, culturally Turkish, but uh, phenotypically, you know, he looked like a, a white Frenchman. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so spoke Turkish, also spoke French, spoke a little bit of Arabic. And his fiance, uh, who's his wife now, his fiance at the time was Moroccan. And he told me about how he was perceived, right? And even though, you know, his French was very good and so was hers, even though she was Moroccan, but because she was Moroccan, they both were Muslim, but because she was Moroccan, you know, there was, there was an inability for someone who was French, who identified as French, who had been in France for generations to see her as a French woman. Whereas they could see him as a French man, and so uh, you know, you you as I mentioned earlier, you you bring in these different national projects, right? Uh, in terms of colonization, decolonization, the post-colonial world wanting to travel to Europe, you bring in race, culture, identity, right? Uh, you bring in gender also. There's so many issues that are at play in industrialized societies, whether it's in France, whether it's in the United States. You know, and this, this idea of multiculturalism uh, hasn't been fully uh, dealt with in Europe, even though I think that there is... Uh, when you travel to Paris, you travel to London, 
there is a, a, a diversity and a multiculturalism that's different than you see in Boston or yeah. in New York or even in Washington, D.C., yeah. right? But still, underneath the surface, there is a, there's a tension, especially in Paris. Uh, you know, you think about uh, men and women from Northern Africa or even from Sub-Saharan Africa, say from like Senegal, yeah. Yeah. and can speak perfect French, mm-hmm. But because they are from a Muslim country, because they are, uh, you know, because their name might be Abdul Karim or, you know, uh, uh, Abdul Rahman uh, or Sadia, right? There is this. What's that? It's a malaise. Right, right, right. That, that, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's 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 difficult to put your finger on in a sense, mm-hmm. but you you know again that it's about it's about race. It's about a certain public history. Yeah. It's about uh, 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 the inability to culturally assimilate. Right, and so there's so many issues at play in the United States. Um. We, we think about the current moment and how we have uh, certain ideas about Islam, mm-hmm. you know, and the difficulty of Islam to be, even though it is one of the Abrahamic religions, to be seen uh, as uh, uh, American as Christianity and Judaism. So I, I have a question for you about yes. um specifically the 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 911 moment okay. in the All United right. States okay. in, in terms of imagery sure because my so in France you you just described this is this is a question of 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 generational legacy as Definitely. well because of decolonization that right. kind of thing and so the United States doesn't have a historical legacy with regard to Islam in the same way my question is surrounding the the pre and post 911 and the sure. di- and the changes that 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 were accompanied that accompanied the 9/11 event in terms mm. of cultural depiction mm-hmm. and just just the, the the very image of of Islam in in the United States. Well, you know, Matthias, it's if you read the work of like Jack Sheehan uh, and some of the work of like Edward Said, mm-hmm. right, uh, the late Edward Said, uh, both academics deal with some of this history of imagery. Jack Sheehan more so, and in, in looking at um, television and film, and really Edward Said looking at the images and the representations, you know, he, he was a, 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 a scholar of uh, literature, um, and so it was much more textual analysis if you're familiar with his work, Orientalism. Mm-hmm. And so looking at the, the larger project, you know, thinking about um, how, we even, how we even have the Orient, right? Uh, and, and using the work of Michel Foucault, the, you know, the French thinker and historian. And so when you think about works before or representations before 9-11, they were always there. Right. You know, you had the oil chic you know, the belly dancers, right? The camel jockeys. I mean, you had these images. You had images of black Muslim men, especially when you think about uh, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, right? You, you, you had these figures in, uh, in the ethos, right? Really, really kind of pushing back on, 
what it means to be American, right. you know, and the, the precepts, the, you know, the ideals that we espouse as Americans. Uh, and so that existed prior to 9-11. After 9-11, um, and in my work, what, what I focus on is the collapsing, you know, the, the collapsing of these different ideas. And so you had the racial other uh, before 9-11. You had the Islamic Revolution. You had uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. You know, you, you had these, you know, you had uh, uh, hijackers. I mean, you, you know, so, so Islam has always been there. But it was really on the margins. After 9-11, it really becomes more central. Uh, and so it becomes, uh, it, from my perspective, w what I was seeing was that Islam um, was becoming uh, a, a central enemy, one. And then two, uh, I saw how black Muslim men in popular culture were becoming uh, agents of the state. So prior to 9-11, they're really on the margins. You see, you know, you see comedies, you see... Uh, um, uh, fantasies, right? You know, so I'm thinking of Morgan Freeman as a Muslim in uh, Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Bill Duke as a Muslim in Car Wash back in the 1970s. Thinking of Sidney Poitier as uh, a, a, a Moorish uh, a ruler in 1964 in the long boats, the long ships, right? And so you, you've had this history, thinking of uh, um, Keith David in the pitch black uh, series with uh, Vin Diesel. So you, you, you had these images, uh, you had these vehicles where Islam was really, again, on the margins. It, it was seen as being, um, uh, it, it wasn't that it was, it was trivial, but it just wasn't taken, uh, you know, in popular culture, it wasn't taken seriously. However, what we see after 9-11, again, is this, this collapsing of the collective sense of what it means to be an American man, Right. Uh, and, and I think we saw this across uh, popular culture, yeah. you know, in film and television. Right. And so there was this this uh, this this need for American masculinity to kind of to regain its footing, because, you know, in, in a large sense. And I talk about this a little bit in my dissertation. Uh, American masculinity felt uh, emasculated. Right. Mm. By the events of 9-11. Mm. Right. And so different masculinities have always been there. Muslimness has always been there. But after 9-11, because of the, the competing narratives, it becomes central. And so the Muslimness is, I think, emphasized even more. Mm -hmm. But w what I noticed, uh, and some other, uh, some other uh, 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 critics and academicians noticed as well, is that in these representations, again, you have... You have these Muslims who are who are uh, presented with a different type of duality, right? Uh, and so they're are they good? Are they bad? They might be representing the state, but we'll never know. We never know their true intentions, right? right? And so you you had some negative stereotyping after nine eleven. You have positive stereotyping, uh, but it's the 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 positive stereotyping. Uh, I think it limits. The, the ideas of what it means to be a Muslim, right? And so if you're going to be a good Muslim within this new reality, you have mm. to act a certain way. So, so, I, so I'm curious about, I, I, I think that's a, that's, 
a fascinating image when you juxtapose it with Mm -hmm. the image that um, I think collective American consciousness had of Mm -hmm. the nation of Islam, for example, in the 60s, and of Muhammad Ali Mm -hmm. um, in the 60s, especially in the context of the Vietnam War, in terms of a rejection of of this white patriarchal power structure in the United States. And so I'm curious about how how you reconcile, I guess, the post nine eleven image mm-hmm. of Islam and of a black Muslim mm-hmm. with the pre nine eleven image and what the nation of Islam represented in mainstream American consciousness Definitely. as this as this intense fear factor, mm-hmm. right? And so well, I I think it's very it, it's really intriguing well, the, to, to to look at that. And so I'm wondering what what, what you think about that. Exactly, I think um, definitely when you talk about pre 9/11, you know, you talk about the, you know, the the three decades of of black Muslim masculinity, mm-hmm. right? Even though we know historically, Muslimness has always been here, but it's yeah. been on the margins, right? Mm-hmm. Right? You know, and if you read Edward Curtis's essay, oh, I can't remember what the can't remember the, the the anthology it appears in, but the essay is about the Black Muslim scare, right? right? Okay. And so he, in his essay, uh, Edward Curtis is talking about how um, you know Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, they're not you know they're 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 not new. They're part of a continuum that has always been here, mm-hmm. right? When you think about uh, 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 the United States. Uh, 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 in the you know the, in the first century, and you think about uh, the Barbary pirates, yeah. right? Northern Africa coming from Tripoli and uh, pillaging American ships, right? Or ships that were sailing, trying to sail to India, mm-hmm. right? And and holding uh, uh, crews hostage, right? That's that's part of this this Black Muslim scare, and that's you know that's like in the seventeenth century, mm-hmm. right? And so Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, uh, even um, some of the uh, black Muslims who were like Noble Drew Ali, mm-hmm. who were part of this Islamizer uh, movement in the early 20th century, they are continuums of something that has been happening, right? You think about Zacharias Masawi, who is the 19th hijacker, right? Who's in serving, you know, licenses in the Supermax out in Colorado, I believe part of this continuum, right? You think about some of the, uh, uh, some of the, the shooters like uh, uh, John Allen Muhammad, part of this black Muslim continuum, right? right? And so this uh, convergence of black masculinity and also Muslimness, uh, um, and I talk about this in my project, that they evoke this uh, uh, negrophobia and Islamophobia, that, that feed into uh, the anxieties that are prevalent after 9-11. So thinking about pre-9-11, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, are, they are civil rights activists, as we all know. But for black Americans, and really for, for people of color around the world and, and some white American allies and you know white European allies, they are uh, they're symbols of a resistance to uh, American imperialism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so so I want to ask about that specifically yeah. because 
I mean, the passing of Muhammad Ali, I mean, mm-hmm. for anybody who kind of paid attention to the history of the icon mm-hmm. and the iconography of Muhammad Ali in popular right. American culture, right. it's kind of striking that here's a man who was so widely reviled when he was at the height of his powers as a boxer and as right. an athlete, right. and who today, and seemingly, and, and this, is, this, is, this is the other thing that, that I thought was interesting, is that if you, if you look at kind of the, his characterization in the press, mm-hmm. notice that as the first symptoms of Parkinson's mm-hmm. start to manifest themselves, mm-hmm. people start to view him with more sympathy, that all of a sudden he's not as threatening. And then, the and then, and then, when, and then, by the time, by the time of his passing, it's it's as if everybody has forgotten that this man was one of the most hated figures in right. the United States in the '60s. Right. And he's this beloved character, this De- this definitely. grandfatherly figure. Definitely. Right. Definitely. And so, so what? How does that happen? And and what does it say about the way that we process images of sure. not only black men but black Muslims specifically? Sure. 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 You know. <sighs> That's uh, that's a question that we have to unpack because it, it's you know in your question yes you're talking you're you're wanting to know about black Muslim men, mm-hmm. but also uh, which is I think very pertinent to our time, you're asking a question about black male athletes and thinking about Kaepernick and most recently mm-hmm. uh, uh, Marshall Lynch uh, and their protests yeah. right. Um, thinking about, uh, you know, you keep coming back to this idea of what does it mean to be American, yeah. right? Who can yeah. be American? Absolutely. Who wants to be American? And with being American, what, what all is entailed? What was, you know, what are the trappings with being American, right? Uh, and if you are American, do you have the freedom to renounce your Americanness, not your not your citizenship, but everything that comes with being American? Right. And so, you, you know, you, you get into uh, really some of the complexities of uh, some of the, the ideals that we, you know, that we purport, you know, to ourselves in our communities and also around the world. Right. Uh, and so with Muhammad Ali, yes, he was reviled. He was seen as unpatriotic. And decades later, he's seen as, you know, for a lot of people, he's a hero. Right. You know, and so and so folks forget. Um, I think how he goes through this transformation is because maybe our ideas about what freedom is changed as a society, right? Uh, it's, it's, not about, it's not about endless war, right? It's the, it's the freedom to choose. It's the freedom to say that, you know, I am a man in my own expression. Right. I, I am an American in my own expression. And so I, I think people, regardless of their religious identities, regardless of the communities they, you know, they come from, I think that they can they can get behind it. They can support that, you know, because at the end of the day, I mean, we all want freedom. Right. You know, we all want freedom. I, I think about um, uh, a, a quote from uh, from Karl Marx. If you read Eric Fromm's uh, Karl Marx's Philosophy of Man, he uh, quotes uh, Marx as saying that you know freedom is uh, essentially it's an intrinsic to what it means to be a human being, right? And it's so intrinsic to what it means to be a human being that even its critics know it, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. just that the critics want to determine the freedom for others, right? Right. Uh, and so we all know that freedom is our essence, but 
in terms of Malcolm X, in terms of Muhammad Ali, uh, I think some folks in society, some communities in society, some powers and institutions in society, they wanted to determine the, the ways that they expressed that freedom and what that freedom meant. Yeah. And so, and, and so that, that, that for me raises the, the question of, of today with regard to Islam. Culturally speaking, mm-hmm. how do we conceive of that freedom? They, to, in, in, in my view, there, there's a distinct sense of hypocrisy based on professed affiliation, symbology. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how, how do you view uh, the, the relationship between our imagery of freedom in relation to, say, a Muslim woman who elects to wear the veil? Right? How, how do we process that in mainstream American culture? Because it seems to me that it goes every which way, and there's nothing, there's nothing really consistent about it. Well, you, you know, Mateus, you, you, you're, again, you're asking a, a, a question that, that is a, a little more involved. I mean, you know, because you think about a, a woman who's wearing a veil, and actually, let, let's, not even, let's not even talk about a woman wearing a veil. Let's, let's talk about a woman wearing... Uh, a scarf over her hair, okay. right? And so we demonize women who are wearing scars over their hair, uh, who we perceive might be Muslim, but they could be Hindi, mm-hmm. they could be nuns, right? They could be some conservative, ultra-conservative Jews, mm-hmm. right? And oh, you know, we're, you know, wearing they may not wear necessarily a veil, but they might wear a wig so that they don't show their hair. I mean, mm-hmm. and so you you find it in different religious communities um, and, and we totally forget about the, the, the freedom of expression, the freedom of religion and, right. and you know someone's right to practice how they see fit. Uh, again, because we, I think as a society and certain institutions and individuals within society may uh, want to challenge how people demonstrate their freedom. Right. Right. But, but, and also, I think uh, I should add to this that uh, as, a, as a society, we're still wrestling with a, a lot of misogyny as well, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you know, you know uh, in, in terms of representation, in terms of images. Um, I think we want our women to be available, right? We want, we, and so the idea of a woman being closed off I think for a lot of men, you know, not the men in this room, but for a lot of men is, is very disturbing. Right. You know, because we're socialized in a way where if you work hard, if you are the best in your class, if you graduate from a, a great school like Boston University, if you get a great job, uh, if you make a certain amount of money per year, so on and so forth, all women should be available to you. Mm-hmm. And so... The idea, the image of a woman being closed off, whether she's wearing a hijab or whether she's wearing a pantsuit, mm-hmm. right, uh, is disturbing for um, it's disturbing for how we're socialized as American men. And, and I've said this to a number of colleagues and students before that until we deal with the the constant invisible elephant in the room, which is masculinity, we're going to have a lot of these issues. Uh, I think we're going to have 
uh, masculinity as a culprit if you examine, you know, um, you know this current administration. Yeah. You know, when you look at athletics, mm-hmm. right? Uh, masculinity is at the core. Professional athletics, masculinity is a core of a lot of the issues that we're having in the NFL and the NBA yeah. and the uh, MLB, uh, and so professional athletics, politics, uh, what's happening in terms of sexual assault on campuses, masculinity is in there and essential, but we're unafraid to address it. Mm. You know, you think about what happened in Charlottesville over the weekend, mm. you know, with the protests. And the protests were about a group of white nationalists wanting to uh, stop the removal of a figure, Robert E. Lee, in, in, the, in the statue, you know. And so it's about the iconography of uh, Confederate masculinity that they're just, you know, they, they don't want to be disturbed, even though you know, the Confederates lost. Mm. Right? So, so on, that, on that point specifically, <clears throat> I was, I was going to ask you about the, the, this designation of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this is, this is, look, this is recurrent, I mean, throughout our national dialogue in right. terms of who we assign the label terrorist to and who <clears throat> we don't. Right. And I, I think by, by any definition imaginable, what happened in Charlottesville is a clear act of terrorism. Right. right. So, why, so, so my question is, why are we so reluctant? To, to attribute the, the li- a label when right. the tactic of fear mm-hmm. has been widely prevalent historically. And it's, a, and it, and it's, no, it's no big secret. Right. Fear right. has been used right. as a tool to enforce control for a very long time, not just in the United States, but That's in power structures, generally That's speaking. That's right. That's so right. why, so why, why are we so, so quick, item one, to, 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 to judge uh, anybody, anybody who may be of Muslim faith? Sure as a terrorist right. and, and person who uses fear as a tool to mm-hmm. control and to implement whatever they want they, they want to implement. But mm-hmm. we're so reluctant to do so otherwise, especially when we have, I mean, if you look at the reaction to what happened, it's like, oh my God, this is absolutely horrible. Right. I mean, this is, this is absolutely unacceptable that, right. you know, white supremacist principles, et cetera, et cetera. But at the core, the, the reflex isn't there. Mm-hmm. And that and and that's what's interesting to me in terms of in terms of what it says about the way we think about this stuff at, at a public level. Well, well, you know, when you when you peruse social media, and and I I use Twitter a lot. Just watching uh, my Twitter feed and some of the responses and some of the retweets, there were a lot of commentators. Um, you know, elected officials as well as you know cultural critics, who who labeled what happened in Charlottesville as an act of terror. Uh, now, I think you can get into you can get into the nitty gritty of was it was it something that was premeditated? You know, was it something that was an impulse? Uh, and then determine okay, was it technically terrorism? Uh, but when you think about what terrorism is, and that terrorism is some violent act to uh, uh, to circulate a particular message or promote a particular message, it was definitely terrorism. Uh, now, the current presidential uh, administration, President Trump, 
has been reluctant, at least up until, you know, I, I haven't checked the news yeah, uh, this afternoon. Ago. Yeah, has been reluctant to label the act as terrorism. <clears throat> and so like uh, a lot of commentators on Twitter and, you know, social media, but out, you know, throughout the news media, you have to ask the question, why? I think you I think you know why he can't say that the act was terrorism because he's talking about his base you know the you know his, he's talking about his supporters but you know not getting into all of that i mean cuz you know i think that it's uh but that's an image that to- when he, totally when when he when he refuses to 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 acknowledge that he has this image sure. of his base sure. and it's that image sure. That, sure. that that that's interesting and that's that's very very curious i find because well, if you like, like you said, there are plenty of people across social media, commentators, critics, who are very quick right. to label it terrorism. That's right. But that's there's right. that people image, of, right? Yeah. And, and but there's that image of the base. Yeah. Well, well, well you know, again, it's it's so it's it's complicated because you know it's it's simple, but it's also complicated. I, I think it's simple in you know thinking about my answer that. He can't label it terrorism because he would ostracize part of his base. You think about Dylan Roof, who uh, was the young man who uh, shot the uh, worshipers uh, in South in the South Carolina uh, church. That wasn't immediately labeled terrorism, also, uh, but it was an act of terror, you know, uh, and so. Again, it, you could say that it's simple, but it's also you could see how it is complex in that in identifying these two acts in particular as acts of American terrorism, you know, you have to you really have to roll back some of uh, some of the layers because, all right, you got to talk about some of the history. How did all of this come into being? Mm-hmm. Right. How did uh, how are we sitting here? Who was here centuries ago, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about the Native Americans, right? How were they expelled from their lands, right, across the United States? Or mm-hmm. even thinking about, uh, 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 you know, the indigenous people out in the Southwest. I mean, how, how were they expelled from their lands? And so, you, you, you know, you're, you're talking about, again, a continuum uh, in terms of masculinity that you have to, you, you, you have to, Analyze, and I don't think anyone wants to analyze it. It is complex because it's mm-hmm. all intermingled with politics, right, and culture, and how we identify ourselves as Americans, mm-hmm. right. And so, yeah, very, very tangled history that we, that no one really wants to. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, your the, the the chapter three, your dissertation, and your analysis of uh, of the five fingers, the, right. the, the the movie. I mean, speaks exactly to to. To that, I mean, right. just because of the inversion of the imagery at the end mm-hmm. of the movie, the plot twist, right, which which represents exactly that's that right. dynamic, right? That's right. That's right. Um, and and so, I I wonder about how you might perceive. Um, for one, for one, I I find it I find it peculiar that that movie was made in two thousand six. Yeah. It's a, it, it's it, it's kind of ahead of its time in that sense in terms it's of identi- so, yeah. in terms of identifying yeah. small the film right yeah. yeah and so and so I'm I'm curious about uh, whether or not 
that invert that that inversion of imagery mm-hmm. is something that is is just beneath the layer of like our mainstream culture and our mainstream imagery. Like how 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 present is it? How because we can identify it here and there when we sure. see it as in as in a movie like uh, Five Fingers. Sure, sure. If I can interject, can you can you just also you know give me, give a sort of brief summary of, oh. of what that inversion is? It, so. Um, a, l- a little bit about the film? About or? the film, about okay. the way Lawrence okay. Fishburne's character. Okay, wrote. so the film Five Fingers, small independent film made in 2006, uh, starring Lawrence Fishburne as this uh, Muslim, lead Muslim kidnapper, Ahmed. And he has uh, his wife in real life, uh, Gina Torres, who is, I think her name in the film uh, is Fatima, and a third kidnapper by the name of Dark Eyes, who is, his name is, uh, he's Moroccan, his first name is Said, and last name, I think, uh, Tagliu. And so you've seen him in in a bunch of films, uh, uh, and actually I think he might be a French citizen. Anyway, in the film, Ryan Philippe plays this uh, pianist, who is well-intended, well-intentioned, wants to travel to Morocco to start a food program, right? He wants to start a nonprofit helping uh, children in one of the uh, mountain regions of Morocco. And so he has this girlfriend who actually is Moroccan, uh, and she doesn't travel with him. He, he's His character is... Um, traveling from Copenhagen to Morocco uh, and he's traveling with a British citizen who is going to be his guide and security on the ground. And so once they arrive at the Moroccan airport, and I think they're traveling to Casablanca, once they arrive at the airport, they're immediately kidnapped by the character Dark Eyes and a few other henchmen. And so... Ryan Philippe's character and his uh, British uh, uh, escort, uh, uh, they awaken and they're uh, back to back and they're, um, they're in, I don't know, they're, they're bound in ropes or in chains and they're in a warehouse. And so Lawrence Fishburne's character, Ahmed, appears and begins to question them. Why are they in Morocco? What are their intentions? Uh, And Ryan Philippe's character immediately, you know, at the beginning is reluctant to say, you know, why he's there, but he eventually says, I'm here to start a food program. So for the majority of the film, that is his line until about halfway through, then he says, you know, I'm here to meet Hassan Fikri. All right. So Hassan Fikri is supposedly a chemist that Ryan Philippe's character is going to meet, and he wants to introduce a, 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 a foodborne virus into food supplies around the world. And so what we learn is that Ryan Philippe actually, his character is actually the terrorist. But at the end, Lawrence Fishburne, who has, uh, who, uh, you know, we assume might be Nigerian, you know, because he's speaking with an accent. Uh, he's the lead kidnapper 
uh, and he's, you know, he's a Muslim, you know, identifiably Muslim. He's wearing a kufi and also what's called the phobe. Uh, and he, he torments Ryan Philippe's character throughout the film, and he begins to cut off fingers until Ryan Philippe's mm-hmm. character gives him what he wants, you know, in terms of information. And so we learn at the end of the film that Ahmed is actually working for the CIA. And all of this has actually happened in New York, right? They, they're, not in, they're not in Northern Africa. Yeah. Uh, the warehouse is in some wharf, uh, you know, in, you know uh, on the Hudson in New York City, right? Mm. Uh, and so it, it brings into, and what I talk about in the chapter, it brings into play discussions about American torture, uh, it also uh, uh, brings into into discussion something I talked about earlier in terms of this uh, duplicity, mm-hmm. right? And, and this uh, the idea of a Muslim could be good, but you don't know if they're good. You don't yeah. know if they're yeah. bad. That ambiguity, you know? right? 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 And so it's, it's very ambiguous. And so uh, it's it's fitting that the the torture is enacted by this this Muslim figure. Uh, and so I, I also talk about how there's, uh, you know, there's so many things happening because immediately as the viewer, we're thinking that, okay, Lawrence Fishburne, this is, it's, it's done. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne's character and those who are kidnapping Ryan Philippe's character also, they're all villains, you know, immediately they're, you know, they're, they're Muslim, they're identifiably Muslim. Gina Torres's character starts out wearing a, a niqab or the veil, hijab, uh, and then slowly she takes off her veil. And so there, there's kind of this, uh, this undressing that happens, right, for Ryan Philippe's character. And so thinking about, uh, 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 us as viewers viewing this film, and I, I, I make this argument that when the prestige happens, when the reveal happens at the end, you know, we're, 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 we've been drawn in, we, we've been drawn in to establish very early on that Ahmed is a torturer, he is an evil man, and he represents the Muslim world, yeah. right? But then at the end, when the prestige happened, we can't we can't change we're, we're you know we can't change or challenge uh, the idea that you torture you do what you have to do as an American in order to save lives mm-hmm. right and so all of this is in play you know and so I, I say that definitely it's uh, a counterterrorism film but it's also in a way kind of torture porn. Yeah. Because of the the moment that this film comes out, you know, you had Saw, yeah. you had the Hostel films, right? You know, Hostel One, Hostel Two, um, you know, a couple other films that were really popular. And so, you know, there was a lot happening with this film, and, and it was really just, you know, I think the critics the critics thought it was okay, yeah. but when you 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 intellectualize the film and you really pay attention to what is happening, it's actually a, a, an excellent film. And so, of the films that I analyzed in my project, um, in my intervention, it was uh, it really was the most complex. So, in my dissertation, I also looked at the film Trader with uh, Don Cheadle, which mm-hmm. came out in two thousand eight. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. uh, excellent film. 
uh, again, I mean, it was, uh, not a lot of people saw it, but it was well done. Mm-hmm. And it also dealt with this idea of uh, 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 this ambiguity and not knowing, okay, is he good or is he bad? But he's, you know, uh, post 9-11, the only way for him to be good is to represent the state. Right. You know, right. and so Don Cheadle's character is working with the CIA, right? And so throughout the film, you don't know, okay, is he good or is he bad? And so in the first chapter, I talk about um, Sleeper Cell with Michael Ely that came out, I think like in 2007. It was only on for two seasons. And so in that show, uh, I look at how Michael Ely's character, Darwin, actually has to, he assumes the identity of a jihadist Muslim, right, Uh, to infiltrate a, a terrorist cell in Los Angeles. And again, he's playing on this... You know, this duplicity of, you know, uh, 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 being good, being bad. Uh, and, it's, and at a certain point, even though we know from the very beginning that, well, we know early in the, the first episode that he actually is an FBI agent. At a certain point, I think as viewers, we really began to question, it, you know, has he really been radicalized? Is he, has he actually gone to the other side? Right. Is he really starting to believe the jihadist, uh, you know, rhetoric, right? And so uh, that is what I saw happening in terms of the collapsing early on, you know, in that first decade after 9-11, right? And so after 9-11, and I talk a little bit about this in the conclusion, uh, and neither of you had privy to this, uh, were were privy to this and and had uh, had my conclusion to read. I I talk about how... um, we begin to see a slight turn where Muslims are, black Muslim men in particular, are uh, used for, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a turn that happens also where they're being used for uh, empathy. And so I point to a, a film, Nas and Malik, about two uh, teenage black Muslim men who are hiding their uh, sexuality. They're in a relationship, right? And at the same time, they're being uh, kind of stalked by FBI agents right. who are unsure, okay, are they, you know, are they, do they... Are uh, they plotting something? Are they plotting something? Why are they so secretive, right? right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, they're secretive because they're hiding their sexuality. And then also, there's another film uh, by uh, uh, Paul Bettany, who's married to Gen- Jennifer Conley, and it's the film called Shelter with um, uh, Anthony Mackey playing uh, a Muslim, a homeless Muslim man who befriends and falls in love with Jennifer Conley's character. Uh, and really the film is really a vehicle for Jennifer Conley. Uh, um, and, is, is, and they're both, they're, you know, they're the lead characters, but they're both great uh, in this film. And so uh, he actually... Uh, Anthony Mackey's character is uh, an undocumented uh, immigrant who is homeless uh, and is also being is also kind of being hounded by the state, by the security state, because of his status, right? right? And so you know you 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 begin to see this 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 trend, this narrative of uh, uh, black Muslim masculinity and its relationship to the state, even if, even if the characters are part of the state, still 
you're you're made to believe that you should be uncertain about their status. Right. Right. And so then when they're outside of the state and they're the target of the state um, and you're supposed to be empathetic, still you're you're as a viewer, you're uncertain about their status. You're uncertain about their intentions. Right. right? Uh, and so, yeah, that's really that's that's my project. And yeah. I, I I think the, the the notion of of masculinity too in analyzing that stuff is is just really interesting because right. you know you you create these two you create these two black male Muslim characters mm-hmm. and I guess that the the reason for which the viewer is supposed to empathize with them is because mm-hmm. they're dissimulating their homosexuality definitely right yeah or in in the other movie it's because. Uh, here, here's somebody who's struggling with the status of being an undocumented person That's right. in, the, in the country. That's right. And it, it, it's this, it's this relationship of power right. that I think is 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 really interesting in terms of okay, what can, what are we authorized to empathize with? That's right. That's and right. What are we not authorized to empathize That's right. with? That's right. That's and, right. And and so I, I I wonder also about what with within the within the community of mm-hmm. of, bla- of black American Muslims, uh-huh. how. How do you, how is how is one expected to process and rationalize this kind of imagery, uh-huh. and 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 still preserve a sense of ide- of individual identity, in, in a mainstream culture that that really has no real way of handling, like the very notion of a black Muslim, mass real masculine identity. Uh, well, it's you know, let let's 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 back up. And look at the the Muslim community um, outside of the the specific uh, Black Muslim community, right? And so, how does the Muslim community reconcile these images, mm-hmm. You're right? You know, because someone could be Pakistani American right. and see Don Cheadle playing a Muslim, and he's you know he's performing the you know the obligatory prayer, mm-hmm. uh, he's speaking Arabic fluently. And they could see themselves in this character, and you know they they may see themselves uh, on multiple levels, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of uh, his command over the English, you know, the uh, Arabic language, mm-hmm. um, praying, uh, trying to reconcile, you know, being uh, 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 bicultural because right. his father was Sudanese, but his mother was American, right? Uh, spending part of his childhood in Sudan, right? And so uh, they could see themselves and they could see elements that they identify with. Uh, but when you think about the larger society, you think about the society uh, in the communities outside of the Muslim community, uh, I think that the Muslims that I know, the Muslims that I've known you know, for decades, you know, you, 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 you try not to dwell on how you might be perceived as different and othered constantly, right? You know, because no one wants to have any of their identities emphasized and then uh, be uh, ostracized or, or, or vilified because of a particular identity. You know, you don't want anyone to say that, oh, because, you know, because you grew up in France, right. You know that oh you know those French people and because you're French you know you know you, you you know you might claim some you know some French heritage that oh well there's there's something wrong with you right. and there's, there's nothing wrong with you 
uh, but it's just someone's perception. Yeah. And so, you know, again, I think Muslim men and women, whether they practice, whether they're culturally Muslim, uh, uh, whether they're uh, uh, practicing all the time and they're praying, you know, the obligatory five prayers and um, they're, you know, praying, you know, supplemental prayers, you know, so on and so forth. Again, I think that they want to just be seen as regular people. Right. You know, it, it just so happens that they they have a particular practice right. that might not be the norm. Right. 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 But 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 for me, that's that that's at the core of the American identity as well. It's, it goes back right? to the freedom. Exactly. You know, and yeah. and and the fact that on on some level, you know, and everybody in this country to some degree can trace can can trace their lineage, their heritage back to the other. Sure, and and, and I, I think it's I, I I struggle to see how it's possible for us as Americans we can we can identify a Black Muslim American right, right? right. but I I, I, str- I struggle to see how in the way that they are depicted in our culture today we can get to we can get to a place in which we can reconcile the the f- the, the fear factor with which they've been depicted in our mainstream cultures and mm-hmm. in our imagery with that basic reality that regardless, like it or not, they're as American as you or me, right? Defin- de- definitely. Yeah, you, you know, it's... I think a, a solution would be to uh, have more, more Muslims, more women of color more women in you know in general uh more people who who whose families maybe immigrated here right um just other voices as content makers yeah. right as producers on some of these news programs mm-hmm. right as uh uh you know as executive producers as directors as filmmakers Really being in positions where they can control some of the content, we need more of that to happen. Yeah. You know, just really across the board, mm-hmm. having you know more young men, young women, uh, be the content makers. Because I I, I feel that uh, the current generation, the current uh, millennial, current you know college folk like yourself, uh, I think you get it right. You understand that the world is much more interconnected, more so than maybe my generation or maybe our parents' generation, right, uh, uh, and, and grandparents, that the, the world is actually shrinking because of technology. Right. And so because of the democratization of, of filmmaking, of uh, video making through technology it, and, and through, you know, audio capabilities I mean you know now it's affordable for you to purchase yeah, a yeah. digital recorder <laughs> yeah, you know maybe 10 years ago that wasn't possible right. you know the prices were exorbitant yeah. right. and so being content makers I think is a possibility for more people mm-hmm. and so because it's uh, uh, more accessible the people who really get it the people who are progressive and understand the power of multiculturalism and, and even support it uh, they're in positions to circulate messages that will challenge some of the retrograde ideas, some of the regressive uh, uh, and counterproductive ideas that were demonstrated, say, over the weekend mm-hmm. you know, in Charlottesville, yeah. Yeah. right? Uh, and so, again, just having uh, 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 the capabilities be more accessible um, for more people, I think, will continue to create the tidal wave that's going to overtake 
uh, uh, the people who are against this multiculturalism that our society really needs and, and really supports. So as far as everyone being able to be a content creator now, that, right. that is absolutely true. It, right. it is it's probably the defining characteristic of the modern time that everyone has a microphone, quote unquote, of right. some sort, you know, whether right, or not it's right. their their phone or, or this, you know, H4N recorder. And sure. we now have a podcast. And, that's, and that's actually something we talk about a lot is that one of the, one of the purposes behind this is, is that because we have a recorder, we have the opportunity to speak to incredible people and thinkers like yourself and, and the other right. people we've, we've, we've spoken to on the podcast. But the, the question is this, are we really averting the issue that that we were facing before mm, because mm. just because we have a microphone right mm-hmm. we still have to have an institution to support us we have the howard thurman center that supports us and, and when you go to, to 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 the idea of representation in media for instance mm-hmm. if if you're going to actually create representation in media yes there is the occasional youtube star that gets through right. there's the there's the podcaster who just makes it big because they bought a recorder but in, in a lot of instances, you're still facing the institutional biases for getting people platforms. Sure, y- yes, yes, but you, you don't need an institution to post a video to YouTube. Right. Uh, and, and you really, I mean, you need a, a clear message, mm-hmm. um, and you, I mean, you, you, you need your message to become popular. Right. I mean, audiences are already fragmented. Right. Uh, and so, can you find your niche? You know, when you think about your show, mm-hmm. who is your show competing with? And how do you distinguish yourself, your, 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 your show from other shows? Oh, right? We have a monopoly these days. Right. <laughs> right. You, you might have a monopoly, but in Boston, I mean, you have a, you know, you have a number yeah. of institutions. Yeah. And, you know, who's to say that someone else might not, right. you know, take your idea and okay. say, oh, well, we want to start a podcast now. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so how do you... How do you distinguish your show if you're competing for the same audience? Right. So, so I, so I have a question about your work specifically, and just moving forward, how you see this evolving in terms of the the basic economics of technology and content creation, uh-huh. and and how how do you how do you present and and how those those interact to with the audience uh-huh. and with questions of of identity, okay. just in terms, especially in an academic setting, say say of a university, mm-hmm. how do you how do you exploit how do you see uh, um, the potential to exploit the structures of technology and their interaction with the audience just in terms of being fragmented and mm-hmm. being very democratized, being uh-huh. accessible uh-huh. with the diffusion of, of, the, of different images and mm-hmm. the evolution of those images. Do you see shifts that, that indicate that that particular, that the technology and the audiences for that technology are, are shifting the, the, the representation? How do, how do you see the evolution of things these days? What, what, mm, how do you a, perceive a, the trend? That is such a, a tall question. You know, I, I consider one of my areas of interest, one of my research areas, to be media studies. But hmm, you're really getting into, like, some of the media economy and thinking about trends. Uh, and... You know, I think part of it is what we were talking about in terms of folks who who get it, who are supportive of multiculturalism, supportive of different voices, and and really in some ways kind of shaming right institutions that that aren't 
you know, they aren't part of this this movement forward, right? right? I mean, because that's really what it is. It's a movement forward. And I'm thinking about the uh, the current um, uh, uh, the current campaign to the current campaign no confederate that is trying to stop the production of the show that HBO is promoting right, confederate right, 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 right where they want to you know the so the 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 showrunners for game of thrones which is a show i love the the main executive producers want to make their next project confederate where they imagine what would america be like if the South won, right. right? And so if the Confederacy won and, you know, if there was still slavery. And of course, a lot of people, a lot of celebrities, uh, I haven't really noticed any politicians or elected officials, but definitely a lot of commentators on, so you know, throughout social media are like, you know, no, we don't, want, we don't need to see this. And so over the weekend, because of what happened in Charlottesville, uh, now, you know, today, some commentators are like, this is why we don't want to see this. You, you don't want to lionize certain figures. You don't want to celebrate certain ideas. Why do we need an alternate reality, uh, this fantasy where the South won? What, what, what would that mean? Why, why do we need to see that played out when we're already dealing with some issues? Uh, and so it's very complicated. Going back to my point you need diverse voices. You need folks who, who get it, who, who want to see different stories. You think about, okay, Moonlight won Best Picture, mm-hmm. you know, won the Best Picture Oscar. It wasn't just black gay men who went to see Moonlight. It was a well-done film. Mm-hmm. And so it was a multicultural audience. And so I, I think you think about Get Out, right, that came out... Uh, a few months ago, you think about Girls Trip is you know one of the top films in the country right now. I think we're at a moment now where audiences they want to see uh, characters and stories, plots that are different, you know, that are celebrating this diversity that we that we you know that we celebrate around the world that we espouse around the world that you know you want to come to a multicultural uh, technologically advanced society um, that is the beacon of democracy come to the united states this is these are the ideas that we celebrate yeah. you know around you know around the world and so i think we're at a moment now where you know moviegoers uh, television viewing audiences, they want to see this you know they want to see even though it's canceled carmichael show they want to see empire Right. They want to see Queen of the South. Right. They, they want to see uh, Jane the Virgin. They want to see these images and these these stories that maybe 10 years ago we wouldn't see. Yeah. Right. And so I think the trend is that audiences, they're hungry for this content. However, the folks in New York where, you know, the, the, the big television stations are, the big you know television channels are and the folks in uh, Los Angeles, in Hollywood, uh, and those are really the, the, the two cultural centers for entertainment, yeah. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're buying it. Yeah. You know, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're, if they're seeing, uh, of course they're, you know, they're paying attention to the Nielsen ratings, they're paying attention to box office uh, receipts, but I think that there is a, there's a, there's a thirst, there's a hunger for this content but thinking about masculinity, thinking about whiteness, mm-hmm. right? 
thinking about uh, 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 white supremacy and these ideas that seem to be uh, 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 tireless. Mm -hmm. Uh, For some reason, the financiers, the corporate executives, they they can't get away from these these tired formulas. Right, right. Well, so if you're going to look at it through the prism of economics, you know yeah. what what's driving people to the box office. Right. That is uh, almost almost wholly distinct right. from that which receives critical praise. So so yeah. sure. So yeah. so moonlight being celebrated is one thing, right? Um, and that's distinct from from what's earning at the box office. That's right? true. You have to ask, why are why do we continue to see these certain formulas where the protagonists are very similar. Yeah. You know, yeah. why, why, why do we continue to see? Uh, do we do we want to see Jack Reacher two or three? Yeah. You know, do we want to see Tom Cruise? You know, in the Mummy, mm-hmm. right? Do we want to see? You know, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible six. Right. You know, why, why why are we why are we as consumers why are we even given? You know these franchises where the protagonist is the same over and over and over again. I mean, I, I think that definitely the filmmakers um, are using certain formulas, using using certain conventions that are driving people to the theaters. I mean, yeah, I mean it's it's sex and violence. They sell. You know, they sell. They sell soap. They sell. You know, they they sell uh, uh, Old Spice, yeah. right? You know, they, they 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 sell whatever. I mean, they sell professional athletics. However, as a society, is that all we want? You know, don't we want more complexity? Don't we want more stories like Moonlight? Right. Right. You know, don't we want more stories like you know more films like Wonder Woman? Right. You, you know. You know. This is what what some audiences really want. D- definitely. Um, but how do you how do you let the, the the economic power of that audience speak at the box office? Well, you know, I think what r- really um, what you have to do is, is you have to uh, you have to encourage the demographic that is the target to want more. Mm. You know, and so you, you think about what is the the, the demographic that most advertisers, most filmmakers are trying to get after. You know, white men who are high school graduates, maybe in college, maybe college graduates, 18 to like 25-ish, mm-hmm. right? That is the target market, right? That's the target demographic. Uh, and as a society, can we somehow promote ideas and, and, and offer options that they want, that they may want, that are different than what has been done over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, just the, the recurring formulaic films and television programs, right? Now, what that looks like, I'm not sure. Yeah. Can we make another 10 Wonder Woman films? You know, can we make another, um, you know, another show like Jennifer Gardner in Alias, right? Can we make another 10 of those? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it might require folks to, uh, you know, definitely provide some different content. Definitely, maybe, you know, maybe uh, some boycotts. Maybe, you know, to stand up and say, hey, we want different content. We mm-hmm. want we want different interpretations of masculinity. We, want, we, we don't just want this hegemonic, narrowly defined idea of masculinity that has to be 
Christian, has to be American born, has to you know speak English with a particular accent that might be New England or might be from the Midwest, uh, might be you know, only only heterosexual. Right. You know, we want we we want more expressions. We might want more Brokeback Mountain. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Right. Let me ask the question on the, on the flip side of this. Uh-huh. Then is that. Do you think these streaming services are are sort of acting as a mm. as a, a force for good in both taking taking away some of the the importance of of the economic power mm-hmm. of the box office uh-huh. and then and also of that particular demographic and of that, of that particular demographic and, and then and then also offering niche markets content because in, in in order for something to be successful at a box office sure. it has to appeal broadly right. but there are things that can exist within within that streaming sphere that right. can appeal to a niche market well you know it's interesting that you talk about the, the streaming services you know and thinking about Hulu Netflix Amazon Prime and there's a couple others out there um, and I think uh, you know like P- PBS even has a streaming service mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that for a while now television has Television has been slowly challenging the primacy of film. Uh, and, you know, there's some richness to characters on television. And, it, you know, it's just when you compare, you know, film to television, uh, in 90 minutes, in two hours, a character is going, you know, thinking about a film, a character is going to have a relatively short arc, whereas on television, with great writing, yeah. you can have an entire season. Yeah. You know, you think about, you know, you think about The Wire. Yeah. You know, you think about shows like, you know, uh, uh, The Fall, uh, which was on the BBC. Uh, you think about a show like Hannibal, mm. you know, with uh, Lawrence Fishburne and also uh, 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 Mad Mickelson, right? You know, Rich writing, you think about Breaking Bad, yeah. right? You have a, a character arc that is, you know, larger. You know, you have six seasons to really, you know, kind of unfold this complex character before us. And so television is allowed to do that just by the nature mm-hmm. of what television is. Um, but I think also with television, what we're seeing is some of the some of the diversity, some of the diverse voices that I'm, you know, that I'm mm-hmm. talking about that we need to see in film. Right. I mean, hey, yeah. I'm a cinephile. I love film. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. I also love television. Uh, and, and now I, I, I watch more television than I see films in the theater. Yeah. But, uh, you know, film matters. Uh, television matters. Uh, but in terms of some of this forward thinking that we're seeing... I think we're seeing more of it in television, yeah, right, and, and, and through these streaming services. And, and I can think about you know just the variety of Netflix. If even if you're not even ordering the DVDs, if you're just looking at what's streaming, yeah, I mean you have so much rich content. You know, when you think about the Marvel universe, DC universe, um, you can't continue to see Spider Man as. Uh, a, a, you know, a scrawny 
white male teenager for the next ten years. Okay. Right. I mean, they're trying. Well, they're trying, but it's it's not it's not you know when you think about authenticity, it's not keeping up with the comic. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, because even in the comic, I mean, you have Miles Morales, right. you know, who is uh you know a Latino male, Afro Latino male who is currently Spider Man. You think about um in uh in the case of Thor, Thor is actually a woman now. You know, you think about uh Hulk. Uh, in the comic, Hulk, I, I think, is an Asian-American man. I mm-hmm. mean, and so if you really want to tap into what people are paying attention to, if you look at, you know, if you look at the content that they're, that they're reading, that they're engaging with, the diversity is there. It's just in television. It's just in film. Because they, you know, the possibility to make money, right, you you narrowly define what characters can be, right. Mm-hmm. right? And so you rely on these formulas, right. right? But I think that in really dumbing down the content by not allowing the complexities, I mean, why can't we see uh, Afro Latino Spider Man yeah. and, and and what his you know what his day may be like as an Afro Latino teenage male? Mm-hmm. Right? Why can't we see that? Why? Why do we have to play it so safe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? You're you're dumbing down this content because you want to rely on what you think is a money maker. But I, I think that uh, the audiences in the particular demographic, while they may be going to the theaters, I think they're I think they're thirsty. I think they're hungry for more. They want more of this complexity. It doesn't always have to be. It doesn't always have to be. Uh, someone of color or even uh, a, a woman in the lead protagonist role but they at least want to see someone that they identif- uh, identify with you know someone who might have their politics uh, who might have their views and see the world you know through a multicultural lens opportunity i appreciate it hey podcast listeners this is kobe that's the end of our conversation with dr mikhail peaton uh, we wanted to thank him again for, for sharing his time and his knowledge uh, and we wanted to thank you for listening to the episode we hope you enjoyed it there is one other important thank you here and that is to miss laura jenneman who is a librarian at move our library uh, she helped make the introduction to dr peaton and we're, we're obviously very thankful for that because this was a fun discussion That interview is one of nine in the Washington, D.C. series. You can find the rest of it at BUCommonThread.com or by searching The Common Thread Podcast in the iTunes Store. Uh, Thanks for listening, and until the next time, we'll keep looking for The Common Thread. Thread.